Senate Minority Leader Anthony Hensley is the longest serving legislator in Kansas history, 44 years at the Capitol. Think about it. He took office in 1977. Jimmy Carter was a rookie president at that time. Apple Computer was just incorporated. Roots was a TV series, and the first Star Wars movie was about to be released. Of course, all of this, as with all things, uh, come to an end. And Senator Hensley's time at the Capitol is about to do the same. Senator Hensley, welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. Thank you. Thanks I'm, for taking the time to be here. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so when we think back to, I think I've talked to you about this in the past, think back to 1976 when you were running for public office. Why in the world did you enter this crazy world of politics in the first place? Well, initially, it, uh, I entered it as an experiment. Um, I, at the time, I was a civics teacher in El Dorado. I was in my first year of teaching. And I thought it might be a good experience to run for office to where I could then go back to El Dorado and, and uh, you know, talk to my students about the experience of actually running for office. I challenged a, an incumbent in the Democratic primary. An incumbent had, had really only been in office for one term. But as the summer went on, I worked harder and harder, and finally, I was 22 years old at the time, and on election night, I won the election. And I can recall, like it was yesterday, that the one person that was most surprised was my mother. She kept saying, I can't believe you won. I can't believe you won. And I said, well, get over it. I won the election. Thanks for the vote of confidence, yeah. Mom. Did and she live in your district? I, I was living with her. So my, my maybe mom and dad, she voted for you, maybe not. Oh, I think she probably did. Okay. But, but um, I remember knocking on a, a guy who was in a trailer court, and I knocked on his door, and he uh, came out, and I was talking to him, and he said, well, you're a little young for this, aren't you? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm eligible to vote. So, I mean, that's the one requirement is you have to be eligible to vote. And at that time, uh, the, well, the voting age, of course, four years earlier had uh, – gone down to 18 and my first election that I voted in was in 72 mm -hmm. which was the first time 18 year olds really had the opportunity to vote and um, <clears throat> and so um, two years later the same guy challenged me in the primary and I was able to have a larger margin of victory which I felt good about. This was a seat in the Kansas House from Topeka. That's right it yeah. was the 58th district which uh, will be represented by Vic Miller uh, when, the, when the session begins uh, this next month. Um, and I represented that district for 16 years. And then subsequently, uh, I think it was, was it 93 that you moved to the Senate? Well, I actually moved to the Senate in 92. I uh, took an unexpired term. I was appointed to Nancy Parrish's term. Nancy Parrish had been appointed uh, Secretary of Revenue by Joan Finney after the 92 session. And so I actually officially became a senator on July the 1st of 1992. I ran then for the full four-year term, and I was sworn in to that in January of 1993. That's interesting. All and right. the other interesting thing about that was when I came into the Senate in 93, there were 21 new senators, a majority of the Senate. And Steve Morris was in that class, and he was the last person in that class to be in the Senate um, after he lost in the uh, 20, 
12 primers. So of those 21 newcomers, <clears throat> you're obviously the last guy standing. So, um, all right, in November, uh, you were challenged by a Republican and uh, who had a major ground game. Um, but anyway, you, you lost. What was your initial reaction to that defeat? And, and kind of, have you had time to reflect on it? Well, I was, um, obviously, I was surprised. Um, I didn't see it coming. There was a huge voter turnout in the Osage County area. Uh, I think there was a real Trump factor and all of that. I think there was a red wave down there. I lost that county by about 2,900 votes, mm -hmm. and I didn't well, win. That's the, that's the race. Yeah, I didn't win enough in Shawnee County. I didn't have a large, large enough margin of victory to make up for losing uh, Osage County by that much. Um, there was a concerted effort by outside groups, um, national Republicans, who spent $145,000 in the race uh, in, that, in the 2020 election. Against you. Against me, that's yeah. right. And in the 2020 election, they took out uh, two minority leaders and two speakers of the House. Um, across the country, a lot I gotta, of. <clears throat> I gotta wonder of, about these uh, organizations based in D.C. parachuting into various states and upsetting the legislature. Yeah, it's I've got to wonder about it too. Um, to me, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense why they would decide to play in in Kansas when. Uh, well, how about this? They want to control redistricting. They want as much of an advantage for the every ten years redraw legislative district maps and so forth, congressional districts, and, and they want leverage there. Oh, there's no question that redistricting will be a, a major issue in this next term. Uh, the legislature takes that up in 2022, and uh, after the you know census has <clears throat> been finalized, and there's no doubt that um, it won't be uh, a very good experience for Democrats, I don't think, in the in the Kansas legislature. Well, the majority all, all, always takes them to the woodshed. So um, when we think about a 40-year career, it's kind of hard to reach back and pick two or three things that you feel really passionate about in terms of what was accomplished. Uh, but can you, can you offer a summary about what you felt like you contributed to the political process? Well, in the, in the leadership role, I was a Senate Democratic leader for 24 years. I mean, I was involved in nearly every major issue uh, in that um, two dozen years, um, be it school finance, redistricting, um, the budget, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. I look back in my uh, years in the House, one of the, one of the accomplishments I was most proud of is I was directly involved in the 1992 school finance law which is basically still on the books, even though Sam Brownback and his allies tried to do away with it. The court wouldn't let the legislature do away with that law. And that law is very significant in as much as, you know, it um, uh, first and foremost lowered local property taxes, which since then have gone up, unfortunately. And I've always said that it's a time-honored fact in school finance that the more we invest in schools at the state level, the less reliance there'll be on the local property tax. Mm -hmm. And that's that's been proven time and time again. And then years later, I was involved in uh, 2019 when we did pass a school finance law that 
the Kansas Supreme Court is now found to be constitutional and adequate and fair. And uh, school finance has always been one of the major issues that I have uh, worked on. I think it goes without saying it's a natural fit for me because I did spend 43 years in the classroom as a classroom teacher. Certainly you think that job would inform you as you go about your votes in the state house in terms of what educators need and what the students student needs were. I, I believe that's true, yes. Mm. Another one of my accomplishments when I was in the house that I'm proud of was uh, at one time uh, there wasn't anybody on the Washburn Board of Regents that lived east of Kansas Avenue. Hmm. It was all, all represented by people who lived on the west side of town. And fat, so I catters, was, fat catters on the west side. And, and I was able yep. to get a bill passed that said that there had to be at least one uh, regent from each of the three state senate districts in Shawnee County. So that ensured that the 19th district, which I represented in the Senate, was going to have a resident of that district on the Washburn Board of Regents. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a major accomplishment back in the um, late 80s. In terms and, of equity and the, the taxpayers who are supporting Washburn. That's right. That's exactly right. Were there a couple of things that you can think of that you wished had been done that you felt strongly about but did not? Well, it goes without saying Medicaid expansion. Um, I made a motion in 2019 to bring a bill out of committee. It failed to bring the House bill, which had passed Mm -hmm. previously on a bipartisan vote. Uh, It failed by one vote. I needed 24 to get it out of committee and it failed, uh, I had 23. And then I was very hopeful that what would happen is um, once uh, the majority leader, Jim Denning and the governor uh, compromised on a bill that was introduced, I believe it was Senate Bill 252 last year, that we would have been able to get it passed in the Senate. Unfortunately, it was um, held in committee. And now the new majority leader, Gene Sullentrop from Wichita, um, he was chairman of the committee and uh, refused to let the bill come out of committee. We haven't even had a bona fide debate on the Senate floor on Medicaid expansion and I think that's a real travesty. Of course, the reason for that is the, the opponents of Medicaid expansion were afraid of it would pass. Oh, I'm and sure. And so they got to keep things bottled up that's right. in the process. That, that's what they did. They it, kept things bottled up because they knew that we would get at least 21 votes in the, the reality, Yeah, 21 votes. The re- reality of it all is that a handful of votes, and it just is a handful, uh, denied well over 100,000 people preventive health care for the last X number of years. Yeah, the estimates show about 150, maybe more than that, that uh, have been denied health care. Not to mention the fact that Kansans have paid in taxes over $4 billion that have gone now to other states who do have Medicaid expansion. And so, uh, and, you know, you follow the Kansas Hospital Association's lead on this issue. They had their own plan that uh, we should have passed. Uh, they're the experts in the field. They know what's needed. And uh, we didn't even follow their advice. Yeah, sometimes I think about these issues. And this is a specific issue in which people with health insurance, no doubt, made a decision to say to a bunch of other people, uh, low-income Kansans, you don't deserve health insurance. So that, in essence, is is what 
it's a hard thing. Reality. It's a hard thing yeah. to wrap your arms around. Yeah, it is. I suppose you've met a lot of interesting people in politics. I have. Um, I have now served. At the end of this term, I will have uh, served with. I think. Um, a hundred and fifty-one different state senators hmm. in the time I've been in the Senate. I've been in the Senate for 28 years, and I couldn't even begin to count the number of House members I served with over the 16 years I was there. Um, but I did do the count on the Senate, and I believe now, as I said, the count's up to 151. Uh, met a lot of inter interesting people. Uh, some of the more interesting people are from Wyandotte County. Um, had a very good friend of mine, a guy named Herman Dillon, who uh, I served with in the House. In fact, he and I came into the House together in the 76th class, or 77th class. And he was a Teamster truck driver. He drove for the Graves Trucking Line. Bill Graves, as in Bill Graves, his dad's trucking line. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was interesting because we were in the majority in 91 and 92, and Herman became the chairman of the Transportation Committee, which I thought was interesting that you would have a Teamster truck driver as chairman of the Transportation Committee. I think that's only appropriate. Certainly you a know? rarity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, very rare. You and, might even uh, say that that's that might be a little too close to home, possibly a conflict of interest. But at least he knew something about transportation. He did. He knew a lot about transportation, and he actually was a very good chairman. Um, and of course, I met you know a lot of good leaders. John John Carlin was the first uh, my first legislative vote. When I say that, I voted for him to be Speaker of the House in '77 because the Democrats took control of the House for the first time and. 64 years mm -hmm. and uh, Jimmy Carter's coattails were long enough uh, he didn't carry Kansas but he elected a lot of Democrats and consequently uh, we had the majority in the house uh, 65 to 60 was the majority and then my second vote was for speaker pro tem of the house and I voted for Jim Slattery who then of course went on to the US House of Representatives so mm -hmm. so let's uh, you've you've worked with or around 10 Kansas governors, the 10th being Laura Kelly, the Democrat. And so starting with Bob Bennett, he would have still been there when you were elected to the Kansas House. So let's just run down the list and see what you think of these folks. What do you think of Bob Bennett? Bob Bennett's very intelligent, uh, but very aloof, almost arrogant. Um, in the 58th district, most people referred to him as Billy Goat. Because, <laughs> because he had a goatee. Um, oh, that's right, he did. He did. And um, it just became a very unpopular governor, mainly because how he treated state employees. Mm -hmm. He was a Republican and was re replaced by somebody you just mentioned who John, was John House Carlin, Speaker, John Carlin. John, John Carlin polled what was maybe one of the biggest upsets in Kansas political history. Nobody gave him a chance of beating Bennett, but he did. John Carlin was an excellent legislator and a, a, a really good strategist. Hmm. Following was another Kansas, former Kansas House Speaker, Mike Hayden. Good legislator, uh, ran into the property tax issue. Yeah, he was a one-termer. He was a one-termer. Uh, Kansas was the only state at the time that was doing reappraisal and classification of property at the same time 
So the reappraisal issue was very punitive, particularly on Main Street small business people. And Joan Finney in 1990 defeated two incumbent governors in the same year. She defeated John Carlin because he was trying to make a comeback Mm -hmm. in 1990. He had served two terms. You can set out one and then run again. And she beat him in the Democratic primary and beat Mike Hayden in the um, general election. Yeah, Joan Finney was kind of an interesting person, followed Mike Hayden. She was really tough. Uh, I always said she was meaner than a junkyard dog, <laughs> but uh, just was a wonderful person. Was she mean or just tough politically, or was she just a mean <clears throat> personality? She could be mean if you got on the wrong side of okay. her. Yeah, uh, but just an incredible politician who had a tremendous memory for people's names. Hmm. Then we skipped back to the Republican ledger and for Bill Graves. Bill Graves uh, didn't spend his political capital like he should have. He could have been a much more effective governor. He's a good guy, uh, but you know he won his election and his reelection by huge margins, and there was a whole lot more I think he could have done. I think he was just risk averse. Uh, I, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. The last conversation I had with Bill Graves, I was the minority leader. A Democratic leader at the time. In mind, I think he endorsed Laura Kelly for governor, did he, did. he not? So he did. Repub- former Republican governor, kind right. of interesting. But the he- last conversation I had with him, he said if he had to do it all over again, his eight years, he would have removed the sales tax on food mm. because he had these tremendous surpluses at that time to where we could have done could have gotten away with it. That's yeah, right. Kansas has one of the highest sales taxes as applied to food. And one of the reasons it's not been taken away is that it re- represents such a large a swath of money. And so replacing that cash, it's hundreds of millions of dollars a year, is a, is a big yeah, obstacle. Yeah, and I would contend we, ha- we have the largest sales tax on food in the country. Because when you put the state sales tax rate with the locals. With the locals. Yeah, there yeah. are some communities where people are paying as much as 10% on food. Yeah, on food. So we're, yeah. you know, we're taking an egg out of their carton of a dozen eggs. That's right. Yeah, it's kind of outrageous. Uh, following uh, Bill Graves, after he served two terms, was Kathleen Sebelius a Democrat? Served with her in the House previously. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd kind of like to take credit. I was county Democratic county chairman at the time. I'd like to take the credit that I actually recruited her to run for the House. She uh, didn't take a whole lot of persuasion at the time, but... Um, uh, she understood the legislative process very well, and of course, her claim to fame was the uh, 2005 school finance special session that we had, where we passed a bill that significantly increased money for uh, local schools. Yeah, yeah, I think the yeah. K-12 faction kind of steamrolled the rest of the legislature and prevailed. She departed early. And uh, to go work for Barack Obama at Health and Human Services and was replaced by Mark Parkinson, a former Republican chairman in Kansas who became a Democrat to run at her side. I've known Mark Parkinson since he was a junior in high school um, because I was involved in college in what was commonly called the Mali United Nations. And we'd go down to Wichita every year. And that's when I first met him. That was uh, held at Century Two, it was uh, sponsored by Friends University, and uh, Mark ran for the legislature when I think he was 18 years old. Hmm. He ran for a House seat, hmm. didn't win, 
but he did get elected to the House eventually, and then, of course, I served with him in the Senate. Yeah, he was a senator. Uh, it was a disappointment to me that Mark decided not to run for governor because had he run for governor, I don't think we would have ever had Sam Brownback as governor. Right, so it would have been a heck of a race. That would have been Sam Brownback came back from the U.S. Senate and r- ran in, in 2010, and right. Parkinson opted not to run. Uh, he was a interesting fellow. Parkinson was interesting. I think he gave a State of the State address without notes. That's right. Which is alarming. Well, he had a photographic memory, I think. Um, he was able to uh, do that. Uh, he memorized his speech. So he could have been a centrist and, and really taken on <clears throat> Brownback in a, in a serious campaign. I believe he would have gotten a lot of moderate Republican <laughs> support and could have won that race, yes. But Sam Brownback won that contest and came to Kansas to be governor. Uh, what do you think of Governor Brownback? The worst governor in Kansas history. And I say that... Uh, There's nobody back there in, in, in 1894 that we just well, loathe? Maybe I should say the worst governor that I've ever served with in the time that I've been there. Um, You know, he led us down the path of destruction in terms of his tax cuts. He had his tax policy, which he called an experiment, was a horrible experiment. And it just set this state back for um, really for decades, I think, in terms of the progress that we had made, uh, particularly on the school finance issue. We had all kinds of budget problems. He raided the highway fund to the tune of about $2.5 billion, which set back the 10-year highway pl- uh, plan. That was just to have and money to keep the lights on. That's right, money to pay for his tax cuts, too. So uh, Governor Brownback <clears throat> departed prematurely to go work for the Trump administration as an ambassador of international religious freedom, and replacing him was Jeff Collier, Dr. I served with Jeff Collier in the Senate, and um, here again, you know, he's a nice guy, but he really kind of, I think, basically continued Brownback's policies and uh, wasn't able to win the Republican primary, you know, against Chris Kobach. He maybe didn't have an opportunity to get any kind of separation from Brownback, who at at one juncture was the most unpopular governor in America. He was. Brownback polled the most unpopular governor in America, and Collier did try to separate himself from Brownback, but it just didn't work. Yeah, so he lost the primary to Chris Kobach, and that leads to Laura Kelly's election. I think uh, if a year before she was elected governor of Kansas, if she would ask me, Tim, do you think you, I could get elected governor? I would have said, Senator, you're a hardworking senator from Topeka, but you have absolutely no chance of being elected governor. <laughs> so uh, she did anyway. That shows you what I know. Well, and, you know, what makes me proud about that is the fact that I was Senate Democratic leader in a caucus that produced the governor and the lieutenant governor in that election because Lynn Rogers, who was a Republican, Switch parties to run as a Democrat in 2016, got elected to a Wichita Senate seat, and then became her running mate. I mean, what do you think about Laura Kelly's term? She's had to grapple with COVID, like every other elected official in America. It's been a great challenge for her, and uh, I think her response initially was a very good response. And then things went south when the Republican leadership in the legislature decided that they wanted to restrict her ability basically to do her job. And that's where I think we've had a real contentious relationship here between her and the, um, and the Republican leadership. And I'm hopeful 
that when the legislature begins in January that they won't go, you know, uh, overzealous in terms of trying to restrict her, um, you know, responsibilities even further. Uh, Laura Kelly is, uh, it's historical in Kansas from the standpoint that she is the third Democratic female governor in Kansas. Joan Finney, Kathleen Sebelius, and Laura Kelly, and we are the only state in the country that can make the claim hmm. that we've elected three Democratic women to the office of governor. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. <clears throat> Something I am aware of is that Kansas, in the time that you've been in the legislature, has gone and flipped between a Republican and Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, over and over and over again. And that's a, fudged a little bit because Sebelius and Parkinson were both Democrats. So just count them as one. When, when the voters were asked to decide, they keep flipping back and forth. Why is this happening? Kansas voters, I believe, want a bipartisan balance to state government. I mean, historically, they've elected Republican legislatures, although I'm an exception to that rule in as much as I served in the majority in the House twice. A long time ago, yeah. You know, my first yeah. two years in the House and my last two years in the House. But that's a rarity. In the history of Kansas, Democrats have only had the majority party in the Senate one time for four years back when uh, Woodrow Wilson was elected president <laughs> in 1912. And um, <clears throat> I just think the voters in Kansas like to have that balance of power. Uh, but it is interesting because the federal delegation, if you look at the United States Senate, they haven't elected a Democrat in Kansas United States Senate since FDR was roaming the White House. Uh, so yeah, why is that? Is, why is that? If, if they like this bipartisan or, or, or uh, you know, kind of a centrist idea, bipartisan thing for the, the governor's office, why doesn't that apply to the United States Senate? Well, we haven't, uh, through the years, we haven't had uh, what I would call really, you know, competitive candidates. I mean, Barbara mm -hmm. Bollier was competitive up to a point until the um, Republicans basically nationalized the election. That's what happened to her. Uh, that's what happens to our congressional candidates oftentimes, that they, they, especially in a presidential election year, they get wrapped up in this nationalizing the election. Yeah. And uh, so I think running for a federal office is a lot tougher. Uh, if you can keep the state elections based on state issues, which I think we've been successful in, in doing, um, I think that, that helps. The other factor that comes in is that in most cases where we had a Democrat win the race, you had a unpopular Republican incumbent. I mean, just going back to Bob Bennett, John Carlin beats Bennett. Then you had Hayden. Hayden loses to Joan Finney. So let's think about the Democrats' bench. You, you mentioned that, sometimes lacking a competitive candidate for the United States Senate. Is it a bench problem for Democrats to get people to run, or is that changing? I know the Democrats are making some, uh, they've, they've, they seem to be making progress in Johnson County, for example, because Johnson County may be changing as a voting block. I think Johnson County is changing. So it's, is the bench getting deeper there? 
I, I believe so. I, you know, and, and uh, in 2018, after the 2018 election, I said if there was a blue wave in Kansas, it really was in Johnson County. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that blue wave didn't um, repeat itself as much as I would have liked in this last election because I thought we had some very good candidates in Johnson County and could have picked up some, some Senate seats. So let's think about the, the 40 years uh, in 40 plus years you've been in politics. Um, the elections have certainly changed since you were running around Topeka as a 22 year old to now. Just think about technology and advertising and, and you know, for an ad back in the 70s, you probably had to go get a guy without a, a hundred pound camera to go shoot film, you know, I don't know. So it's totally changed. And what, that, do you, what do you make of that? In that first primary in 1976, when I was 22 years old, I spent $868, most of that for postage, because I wanted to be sure that I did at least one mailing. Now, one mailing is unheard of. You know, you've got to do mm-hmm. 10 or 12 or 15 or whatever the case may be. And uh, in this last election, I will have spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $120,000. So you so, spent 120 for a job that pays about 25, 30, whatever the number is. But, you know, a lot of that was <laughs> I, I um, got in, went in what we call the call room. The call mm-hmm. room, mm-hmm. you, you uh, make phone calls and you directly solicitate, you know, people that you know and sometimes people that you don't know to ask for campaign contributions. And... Um, that's hard work. That's part of the being the candidate is you've got to make sure that you raise the kind of money you can uh, have to uh, be competitive. Do you think government is more transparent? You can narrow it down to Kansas government if you want. I think, you know, social media has kind of opened the door to uh, toxicity, but also with live streaming and these kind of things, it allows uh, Kansans to see more of the political process than they ever did before. I think that's true, Uh, although I will say that I um, never was much in terms of tweeting. Yeah, I know. Um, And, of course, my Facebook page basically um, was up there with my communications director who worked for me in the office who did my Facebook page. Uh, So in terms of social media, I'm, I'm probably behind the times. And in terms of being able to now, you don't have to catch up things. No, I don't. So you held out. Way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, how do you measure the, let's just say the raw honesty of politicians? Is, is, do you have a sense that the people that are elected to the Kansas legislature are more honest? Or not? About the same? Oh, I think it's about the same. I don't think the honesty factor has changed much. Um, that's, I mean, that's one thing I've always attempted to do in my political career is be honest. Uh, I th- learned that from my dad. Uh, he always said, you know, you don't, <clears throat> you want to be sure that you tell people the same thing, and uh, that way you don't have to remember if you've, if you've uh, somehow changed your position on something. Um, I think oftentimes politicians lock themselves into a position that they don't feel like they can get out of. And I've always said that if you commit on an issue and then realize you've made a mistake, then you need to go back to the person you committed to and just say, I'm sorry I made a mistake, 
I'm going to change my position. But you do that before the vote, mm. you know, before you actually mm-hmm. make that decision known publicly. And um, I've always operated that way. And I've always attempted to operate that way with not only the members of my own political party, but also with the Republican leadership in the Senate, even though I may disagree with what their position is and sometimes vehemently disagree with them. I make sure they know where I'm coming from. Yeah. And um, I think that's very important. Your words, your bond in the, in the legislative process. Yeah, that's a very important thing, you know, the promises you make to people. And I think it's an important thing that your word is your bond to the news media, too. I mean, I look at you guys as being um, our congressional record, so to speak. You know, the back in D.C., they've got a congressional record mm-hmm. where everything that is said is verbatim printed in the congressional record. And I've always felt like the news media here in Kansas is our congressional record. So if there's something that you tell them, you need to be factual, truthful about it. Um, otherwise, you know, it could come back to um, um, basically embarrass you in the future. Well, I always tell people that as a reporter, everybody knows if I had a good day at work yesterday because in the in a newspaper for example they can just read whether I wrote a crappy story they they know it for sure there's no hiding right and we publish mistakes we publish mistakes in the newspaper so yeah. uh, there is some accountability there it's hard not to alienate some people though sometimes you write stories that they otherwise would not like to see in print and to I think a lot of politicians it's personal to them but to me, it's not. Uh, I'm sure I've written stories, <clears throat> Senator, that you very much wished were not written. You know? Yeah, I can maybe think of a few, but there weren't many Yeah. over time. And I think it's how you deal with the news media. I, I always had an open-door policy. I was always accessible to the news media, and that's one thing that I took a great deal of pride in. I didn't, I didn't fear the news media. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I was comfortable enough to be able to sit down and, um, you know, talk at length. Um, although there were some reporters sometimes that I got frustrated with who would spend a lot of my time and then they wouldn't even quote me, you know, in their in the article. <laughs> what but, I have always appreciated is that people tell me when I make mistakes, I can I can own it, uh, but then don't don't ignore me for the. For the future, just because I made a mistake, you know, right. make a mistake, fix it, and move on to the next day. I've always kind of considered that the professional approach. But you know, in a in a political environment, I've had a House Speaker refuse to let me do an interview with him for a couple of years, just simply because of a story I wrote about a memo he put out to his Republican colleagues that right. he didn't want to be aired out in public. So. Right. I know, Senator, you were in your uh, in the State House office forever. But you, you have a bunch of memorabilia. You've had, you have to clear out your office, right? Yeah, I'm actually doing that now. Um, I did it this last weekend. I, I got a letter here a week or so ago uh, from the Kansas Historical Society. Mm-hmm. And I was very relieved and, and pleased, quite frankly, to get that letter because I wasn't sure what I was going to do with all the papers and documents that I have, uh, hard copy documents, not to mention all my digital documents on my computer. 
And so they uh, asked me if I'd be willing to give them my collection, and I told them I would. So this, um, this past Monday, uh, with the help of one of the guys that works uh, for me, we took 10 boxes of documents out there, and we've got probably another 10 boxes yet to deliver. They told me to try to get that done here the first of this next week, because Pat Roberts' collection is on its way from <laughs> Washington, D.C. Oh my. Did you send to the museum the files that you had on, on political operatives with evidence of being them being scoundrels? Everything's in there. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Senator Anthony Hensley from Topeka, Democrat, retiring in January. Thanks for being with us on The Reflector. All right, Tim, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.